0: Good evening, and welcome to the Business of Giving. I'm your host, Denver Frederick, and let me start tonight by asking you a question. Do you have an estate plan? You might be surprised to learn that over 50% of baby boomers do not. But an organization called Free Will has greatly simplified the process. You can now do your will online and at no cost. And as our co-founder and co-CEO, Patrick Schmidt, tells us, it is generating significant contributions for charitable organizations.
1: Free will, at its core, has raised about $700 million for charity over the last few years. Actually, most of that's in the last 12 months, so that's been really exciting. And what we've realized is that that planned giving, these gifts in a will or a trust, are just orders of magnitude larger than any other type of giving.
0: And then you will hear from Jack Kozakowski, the president and CEO of Junior Achievement USA. Junior Achievement's purpose is to inspire and prepare young people to succeed in a global economy. And they do this in large part through volunteers.
2: We have a quarter of a million uh, volunteers every year in the program. The vast majority of those are business people.
0: But first, the Business Giving News Digest for Sunday, August 4th. A treasure trove of historic photographs chronicling decades of African-American life will be available to the public thanks to the Ford, MacArthur, and Mellon Foundations and the J. Paul Getty Trust. They teamed up to purchase the photographic archive of Johnson Publishing Company, publisher of Ebony and Jet Magazines, for $30 million. Earth Overshoot Day marks the point at which we've collectively blown through the amount of food, timber, fiber, and carbon that the planet can renew or manage in a year. 20 years ago, Earth Overshoot Day fell on September 29th. This year, it fell on July 29th. The Ad Council, the leading public service announcement creator, is launching a consultancy to help nonprofits and companies create better initiatives. And finally, in the UK, only 10 to 12% of ultra high net worth individuals, those with a net worth of over $12 million, are engaged in philanthropy according to new research. And that is the Business of Giving News Digest for this Sunday evening. I'll be back to speak with Patrick Schmidt of Free Will right after this.
3: Before you give to charity, go to CharityNavigator.org. Charity Navigator provides free ratings of thousands of America's largest charities, helping you get the most out of your charitable dollar. CharityNavigator.org, your guide to intelligent giving. Most teachers spend more than $500 of their own money on school supplies each year. That's because too many classrooms lack books, microscopes, art supplies, and even pencils. At DonorsChoose.org, you can help students and teachers get the resources they need for a successful education. Whether you support a field trip to a local museum, yoga mats for a health class, or technology to teach kids to code, you can join the 2 million individuals who've already made a difference in the classroom. Visit DonorsChoose.org to bring a classroom dream to life.
1: Well, my husband is a retired sergeant from the
2: Air Force. Well, he was in the Army for 14 years and an MP.
3: 23 million veterans, they're heroes who need our help.
2: Well, I'm here because my daughter has had her third surgery for cancer. We've had some difficulties, so we're here quite some time. We're going on to three weeks.
3: When our heroes' families need help, they turn to Fisher House.
2: We learned about the Fisher House through the doctor and we were so grateful because Who has three weeks to be able to come and stay at a hotel?
3: Fisher House is a safe, free place to stay for families of wounded warriors and veterans receiving treatment at VA and military medical centers.
1: Fisher House is not only
2: a home away from home, it was like family away from family. Thank you, Fisher House.
3: Thank you, Fisher House. Helping military and veterans' families. Fisher House at FisherHouse.org. Sometimes having family close by is a hero's best medicine. Follow The Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash giving. And now, back to The Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer. There is a massive transfer of wealth
0: occurring, some $35 trillion over the next 20 years, as the baby boomer generation passes on. Is there a way that more of this wealth can be directed to charitable causes and nonprofit organizations? Well, a company by the name of Free Will believes that there is, and has created an easy and simple process that helps make it possible. And it's a pleasure to have with us tonight the co-founder and co-CEO of Free Will, Patrick Schmidt. Good evening, Patrick, and welcome to the Business of Giving. Good evening. Thank you for having me here. Share with listeners the idea behind Free Will and how you came up with that idea.
1: Sure. Um, So Free Will, at its core, has raised about $700 million for charity over the last few years. Actually, most of that's in the last 12 months. So that's been really exciting. And what we've realized is that that planned giving, these gifts in a will or a trust, are just orders of magnitude larger than any other type of giving. And so what we decided to do is really study out at Stanford University why people weren't making more planned gifts. We realized that people really struggle with estate planning. And then when they even get around to estate planning, no one's asking about charitable giving. So we made some tools that are free, warm, intuitive, to help people do their estate planning. We actually nudge charitable giving in the process and people give six times more when they use our tools compared to any other normal process.
0: That's a pretty impressive opening, Patrick, I must say. Well, before you started this venture, you did a slew of research, both with nonprofit organizations and with baby boomers themselves. Let's start with nonprofits. And you studied and examined the planned giving offices at these organizations. What were some of your key takeaways?
1: Well I think there's two real challenges for plan giving office. Um, the first is that the data is so poor in plan giving. If you think about everything that's changed around direct mail and digital fundraising, which is more of my background, it's become a hard science and you can really understand what's happening in real time. The challenge for organizations is that only 20 to 25 percent of people who make a gift, in a will or a trust, tell the organization. Mm-hmm. So you may send out a postcard and you only know if it works 35 years later. <laughs> um, so that's a huge challenge. Um, you know, the second is that it's it's so um, it's structural, right? I mean many planned giving offices or teams live under major giving. Mm-hmm. And so they use exactly the same tools. We're gonna go out, we're gonna have breakfast or lunch, we're gonna have a series of conversations, and then we're gonna make an ask. Now it's not a terrible model, but it's wholly incomplete. And what we've seen is that the same people that are making $20 annual checks can leave $100,000 bequests. Or sometimes it's people that have never made any gift at all, who are really just savers, are leaving massive bequests. And uh, most organizations just tend to ignore them. Part of that's based on organizational design.
0: Yeah. So what solutions would you recommend to these nonprofits to become more effective in their planned giving? department.
1: So I think one thing that we highly recommend is that every person who's in digital fundraising or marketing or annual fund needs to get trained up in planned giving and really understand it. I mean, a typical planned gift is three times someone's total lifetime charitable giving. Mm -hmm. And so if you're ignoring that, frankly, you're not doing your job well enough. Um, The second piece is really investing in how do you make planned giving easier for folks? And then how do you do so in a way that's trackable so that you can really understand your audience and figure out what's working and what isn't.
0: Has uh, uh, some of the changes in, in tax, uh, the recent tax reform, has that impacted plan giving in any way?
1: The biggest shift is actually to the step before plan giving, mm-hmm. which is what are called qualified charitable distributions. These are gifts that are come out of your IRA. You're only eligible to do so if you're over 70 and a half this year. So it's roughly born before June 30th, 1949. Um, but for those folks, Denver, we were talking earlier about the big drop in the number of people that are itemizing deductions, and especially if you're not working. But that shift has gone from about 24% to about 9% Mm -hmm. of people who itemize deductions. The magic of a qualified charitable distribution from your IRA is it actually just lowers your overall income instead of raising deductions. So it's perfectly tax efficient. And frankly, if you're over 70 and a half, this is the way you should be giving.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, You also um, interviewed a
1: lot of baby boomers. What Mm -hmm. did you hear from them? Um, baby boomers hate nothing more than estate planning. Yeah. And they avoid it. <laughs> I mean- It's mo- scary, isn't it? It's terrifying. And people use the words like scary and complicated and expensive. They'll say things like, I'll do it next year, even mm-hmm. though I said that last year. More than half of boomers don't have an estate plan. It's also true that more than half of parents don't have an estate plan, both of which are huge problems. Yeah, And even those that do, they're usually typically out of date. Maybe, you know, the kids are no longer minors, they've moved states, they've gotten remarried, all of these things. I mean, estate plans should be updated at least every five years, if not more often, and nobody's doing that.
0: Yeah, well, I I also think they just don't want to face their own mortality. Oh, certainly. Death, you know, we don't want to use that word, but uh, it seems pretty immature not to.
1: Right. I mean, it's a core human aversion. People don't want to think about their own mortality, and people have dealt with this differently for thousands of years.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but it's
1: really something you you really want to do for your family and, and for the causes you love as well.
0: Well, that's a good background. Uh, and therefore, what you've done, you've created this tool, this platform called Free Will. Tell us, Patrick, how does it work? What do you do when you go to the website? Uh, how complicated is it? And how long does it take?
1: Great question. So we sought out to make something that was warm, intuitive and free, to really take all the barriers we just talked about around estate planning. And about 65,000 people have done their estate plans through free will so far. These are people who are allocating their entire life savings for the most part. The way that free will works is it's a website. You can think about it as TurboTax for estate planning. Mm-hmm. You can use it to make a will online the same way you would a legal Zoom or a Rocket Lawyer. It's becoming incredibly prevalent. Um, by some estimates, the majority of estate planning is happening online these days. You can also use it to get all of your affairs in order and then what we call document your wishes before taking it to a nearby attorney. And if you have a more complicated estate, that makes a lot of sense. If you have property overseas, if you have kids with different spouses, um, if even if you just have a very large estate, that's a great avenue for you as well.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, what does it cost? Uh, so it's totally free for individuals. And we actually ran some experiments early on at Stanford To say, uh, you know, what's the difference between charging $100, which seems like a fair value for a full estate plan and charging zero, and 20 times more people will do it when it's free. (laughs)
0: Um, You mentioned earlier that people who are doing it in this fashion are giving six times more to charity than they would otherwise why is that the case? Are there pathways? Are there prompts? What do you do to get that kind of result?
1: Yeah. One of the most interesting findings in our Stanford research that was surprising to us is how rare it was for anyone to even be prompted to think about charitable giving during the estate planning process. That's incredible. It's true of Rocket Lawyer and LegalZoom. It's also true of most attorneys. Mm -hmm. There's so many things happening at this moment. Who gets the stamp collection? Who might be the guardians for children? You know what song are playing is playing at the funeral. All these things are top of mind, and so so charitable giving goes out the window. When you can ask about it and use what's called social proof, which is, you know, Denver, many of your friends or many Americans do this. Would you like to consider it? That giving goes up by a factor of three or four, mm-hmm. and actually the average gift doubles. Yeah, and so you see a dramatic impact. Really, you know, Americans are a charitable people. Ninety percent of folks give somewhere every year, and so few people give in their wills or estates that it's largely a factor of process and not motivation. What's the average bequest uh, on free will? The average bequest is $82,000. Wow, that's impressive. These are the same people writing $20 checks to NPR or Sierra Club. Mm -hmm. It's not overwhelmingly wealthy. Mm -hmm.
0: Talk a little bit about the nonprofits you partner with, uh, the process of getting them on board, and the mutual obligations that you have to one another.
1: Sure. So we work with more than 190 nonprofits ranging from the United Way and the Red Cross, all the way down to this lovely local dog shelter in California. Mm -hmm. And what we do with them is we create custom versions of the tools that they can then share with their own supporters. So their supporters get access to free tools that really help them with a core need and then in those tools, when you get to the philanthropic prompt that I was speaking about earlier, it says, great, do you want to leave to the Red Cross? Or do you want to also type in your own organization? You're free to leave to nobody at all. You're free to leave to multiple, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But it makes giving to the Red Cross extremely intuitive. And it makes these tools available to their donors. Mm-hmm. And so it's a huge win. Um, and we've seen, you know, as I mentioned, more than $700 million committed. Uh, through free will. That's
0: incredible. So uh, if you're not a partner of free will, then those charities will be eligible if the person who is filling it all out wants it to go to a particular charity, whether you have a
1: relationship with them or not. Exactly. So there's no restrictions on whom you can give to. Anyone who's listening and needs one can go to freewill.com. They're free to select one of the charities there. They're free to type in their own church or synagogue or alma mater, um, whatever it may be. And we're thrilled to support the broad sector, even those we don't partner with. Mm
0: Mm-hmm. Well, Patrick, you have um, nothing but audacious goals. You're looking to raise a trillion dollars here in the next decade or so. Seven hundred million is an awful lot of money, but boy, you have a long, long way to go. What are some of your plans for getting there?
1: Yeah. So we've really we think we've just hit the tip of the iceberg. Uh, with you know, sixty-five thousand is a very large number of people. It's mm-hmm. also a very, very small percentage of the population. And seven hundred million is you know pretty outstanding already. I mean for Context: The entire Democratic field of the twenty plus candidates, plus you know the other three hundred, have raised two hundred and fifty million dollars yeah. combined with mm-hmm. a massive spotlight. And so we think there's a huge opportunity across the U.S. with a great philanthropic uh, culture. And then you know two three years from now, we'd expect to be expanding to Western Europe, which has very similar demographics. Canada, Australia, we have people that we've talked to who are really interested in bringing it to Japan, which has a very you know quite a bit of an aging culture. China. Uh, just has a massive population, less of a culture of philanthropy, but that's something that can be brought along. Mm-hmm. So big effort. Um, but we have an amazing team, and we think it's quite possible.
0: Yeah. If free will is of no cost to consumers mm-hmm. and you're a for-profit company, mm-hmm. what is your business model and how do you generate
1: revenue? Sure. So what we've done is we've been able to partner with nonprofit organizations who pay us a flat annual subscription fee based on size of the organization. For custom versions of the tools, mm-hmm. and then what they're seeing is in many cases a hundred to one, or in some cases ten thousand to one ROI, mm-hmm. um, and so that's been thrilling for them. Most nonprofits are already investing in plan giving in some way. Oh, they are, yeah. And you know, sometimes that's in direct mail where you don't actually understand whether it's working. Um, sometimes it's in you know other you know, long-term events. We've seen this is just incredibly efficacious, both for organizations that want to spin up a plan giving program and for folks that want to accelerate a plan giving program on top of a few officers that they already have. Mm -hmm.
0: So this is more or less a flat fee based on the size of the organization as opposed to the amount of money that they take in.
1: That's correct. Mm -hmm. And what we realize is that we want to help people be wildly successful. And we don't want them to think, oh, I shouldn't. What if I'm too successful? I haven't budgeted for that. Yeah, yeah so that, now we can go all
0: in. And in that also sometimes is against the culture of nonprofit organizations. Exactly. They have a hard time getting their arms around a percentage. Exactly. And they yeah. just, uh, you know, you got ethics and concerns and things of that sort, which totally. I think are a little outdated myself, but they, they still exist. Uh, you know, I mentioned in the opening that you are the co founder and the co CEO of Free Will with uh, one of your co founders, Jen. Um, what are the advantages of an arrangement like that, and what are some of the difficulties you need to work around?
1: Yeah, I think that co CEOs can either be the best or worst idea you've had. <laughs> yes, uh, I, <laughs> I have been incredibly lucky with my co founder Jenny. Uh, Jenny is brilliant. Just to give you some very quick context on each of us, um, Jenny went to Harvard, top of her class, and applied mathematics. Worked in finance, helped start the impact investment fund at Bain Capital, has some other startup experience. My background is totally different. Grew up on the East Coast, Jenny's West Coast. Worked in nonprofits, ran email fundraising for President Obama. Worked at Change.org. We met out at Stanford, and um, and clicked very quickly. We realized that we were totally different, but with very similar values, mm-hmm. and that that's what's made it work. Um, the upside is that there are some things that only a CEO can do. And I don't think we can do twice as much. I think we can do three times as much, yeah, because we only do the things we're really good at. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, we have very few overlapping weaknesses, which is great. Um, we actually don't have that many overlapping strengths, as well. So that's been excellent. Um, the things you have to do to make that work is have an incredible, incredibly clear decision-making process. There is very little that we have to agree on, right? You don't want to operate on consensus. Instead, you want to make sure that. You know, On these three types of decisions, Jenny's in charge, yeah. and I'm going to give as much input as possible, and then on vice vice versa as it happens. And so a high degree of trust, very clear decision-making processes, and a complementary skill set. Right. If I was a co-CEO of someone like me, it wouldn't work.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And also having that clear decision-making process, that will also give you speed speed, and things won't drag on and drag on and back and forth and and things of that sort. You know, everybody talks about starting a business while they are at school. And your particular case is when you were in business school at Stanford. It's always a very romantic notion, but sometimes it isn't all that romantic. What advice would you have for a young person, perhaps in college or in graduate school, thinking about starting uh, a business? Uh, What have you learned from that and what would you like to pass on? That is a great question.
1: I think a few things. One is it's hard and it it makes it, you are constantly at a place, at a grad school, at a place like Stanford, the opportunity cost of your time is so high because Mm -hmm. there's so many things you could be spending time on and choosing it to work on the social venture you have or the startup you have, instead of going to see that speaker, going to spend time with amazing classmates is a really hard choice. The second is that it can also be uh, an incredible accelerant on your experience. And what I realized is that some of my classmates were bored out of their mind in accounting class, and I was desperate to learn it because we were going to go have to figure this out next week. Yeah, yeah, And when things are immediately applicable, at least for me, it made the learning so much faster. and it it really honed the things I needed to learn and could go out and talk to the best professors, the smartest classmates, the right classes, and and really sharpened my thinking on a lot of that. Um, and the last thing I'll say is, sort of why not, right? In another world where you'd have to quit your job, the risks are much higher. Like We weren't otherwise going to be working during grad school, and so it was a great chance to take a really big bet on something that we thought could change the world. Or it could fall flat on its face. Yeah, yeah. We're, we're glad how that worked out. But <laughs> even if it it failed, we, it would have been a great experience.
0: Right. It always makes sense when you do things on the side like that. Right. As opposed to, you know, cashing in all your chips and taking that big jump. Uh, this has got a nice little safety net uh, below it, which you have not had to avail yourself of. Talk a little bit about your corporate culture, the kind of company you've tried to build, and what makes free will such a great place to work?
1: Yeah. We've got some really core company values that we focus on and talk about all the time. And let me highlight two of them. Um, The first is kindness, Mm -hmm. which everyone would say is important, but few people focus on. And it's something we even screen for in hiring people. How do you do that? Um, Anyone who's getting hired for any particular role, let's talk about an engineer, for example, we develop a scorecard on a bunch of key attributes. Some of them will be existing technical knowledge. Some of it will be overall acumen. Things like tenacity and kindness are there, and they're scored just as highly as technical acumen. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean you you can't know how to code and come, but if you are not an exceptionally kind person, we probably shouldn't hire you. And we, we can you know ask questions about that, talk about how they view their past experience, whether they blame other people or take responsibility when things didn't go well, how they talk about people that aren't in the room. Um, all those things really emphasize it and then I think Jenny and I try to treat each other with extreme kindness and that flows down. We also try to treat our partners and our users and even competitors. Um, we don't have that many competitors, but when we do, we try to treat them exceptionally kind as well. Yeah. And then the second is focus, right? As you have a very smart team that's growing quickly, we try to only work on one, two, or three things at a time and do them exceptionally well, which means that we actively choose to be bad at things and that's okay, <laughs> right? Some Some people don't feel comfortable being bad at some components of a business or an organization. And you have to be if you're willing to make focus a priority.
0: Yeah, that's really interesting. I think on both counts, I think that uh, it's probably easier to teach someone to code than it is to teach someone to be kind. And one of the things I really like what you just said about focus, too, it's a good way to avoid burnout. Mm -hmm. It's organizations who try to focus on too many things at once that just absolutely wear out the team. But if you're really disciplined and strict about it, people will be fresh and energized as opposed to just feeling completely underwater all the time. Let me close with this, Patrick. What challenges or problems have you encountered that you never envisioned when you first started Free Will? And conversely, what has been the most pleasant surprise for you? I
1: think one of the biggest challenges that we didn't expect is – that the hardest thing about running a company especially one that's going somewhat well is choosing what to say no to we recently went through an exercise where our partners have been generally thrilled with free will mm-hmm. and especially as we started rolling out some new tools around qualified charitable distributions they said oh great what's next we have this problem this problem this problem we'd like you to solve them all for us <laughs> and we love to solve all their problems and we had to go through a really deep research process around whether or not to address donor-advised funds or stock gifts next Um, and then go tell people actually that we're doing nothing on donor-advised funds for at least nine months, a year, maybe even two years and really focus on helping stock giving as well. And so then having to go call people and say, thank you for asking for this thing and being willing to pay for it. We are not going to give it to you and we're not going to take your money for it. It was a really interesting challenge. Mm -hmm. I think the thing that's gone... You know, maybe I could have reasoned this from the onset, but has gone stunningly well, is how um, incredibly joyful it is to work in the nonprofit community and specifically the plan giving subset of the nonprofit community. I mean, I guess it makes obvious sense that if you're doing plan giving for a conservation organization, you're probably not a jerk. But in <laughs> aggregate, we work with so many amazing, lovely people that I, You know, this was two weeks ago on the New York subway and someone just yelled at me. And I was like, I haven't been yelled at in seven months. This is incredible because both our team and most of our partners are just such amazing people um, across the board, right? The folks running animal shelters in the Northwest are different than the people running Christian foundations in Texas, mm-hmm. different than the colleges in Boston, but they're all just extraordinary folks. And it's been um, it's been so nice to become their friends. Yeah. And it's been such a joy to be part of that landscape.
0: Plan-giving folks are a very interesting group of people, and somebody equated them once is that they're like the field goal kickers of a football team. They're not out there with the rest of the team. They're off on the field by themselves because nobody else in the organization understands anything that they do. But I think you've certainly made the point they make a huge difference, perhaps the biggest difference in terms of the health of an organization. Well, Patrick Schmidt, the co-CEO of Freewell, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. For those who want to use the site and learn more, tell us that website again. And for nonprofits who might want to take a look at becoming part of this
1: venture, what do they need to do? So people who want to make an estate plan uh, for free and think about charitable giving, but also if they don't want to, totally fine. It's freewill.com, very easy. Um, Nonprofits can go to the same site, or you can also just email me. I'm patrick at freewill.com. Got to claim that email address early in the company's history, and so... Feel free to shoot me a note, and we'll get you set up with the right folks. One of the benefits of being a
0: co-founder, no doubt about it. Well, thanks, Patrick. It was a real pleasure to have you on the show. Thank you. It was great to be here. I'll be back with more of the Business of Giving right after this. I used to have more hair. I used to have
1: more color. And I used to have cancer. I beat it. I did. Not alone. I used to have no idea what the American Cancer Society did. Research, yeah, but also free rides to chemo and free lodging near hospitals. I used to maybe give a little, then
3: I got so much back. I used to have cancer.
1: Please give at cancer.org.
3: A simple smile can say so much. It can say thank you, please, or even I love you. Sometimes a smile can say more than words could ever express. But what if you couldn't smile? Unfortunately, that's the sad reality for so many children today. Without the help of life-saving surgery, helpless children find themselves cast aside and all alone. But it doesn't have to be this way. To learn how you can help Smile Train, the world's largest cleft charity, change the world one smile at a time, go to SmileTrain.org. You probably know Sesame Street as the TV show that taught you letters and numbers. But Sesame is so much more. Sesame Workshop is a nonprofit with a mission to help all children grow smarter, stronger, and kinder. Big Bird wants to help, so he started the Yellow Feather Fund to bring education to children in need. You can help too. Visit yellowfeatherfund.org to learn more or make a donation. That's yellowfeatherfund.org. Do you remember your first job? We all deserve opportunity, but the frustrating truth is that while talent is equally distributed in the U.S., opportunity is not. Six million talented young adults in the U.S. are out of work and out of school. Year Up empowers these young adults with valuable skills and connects them to leading U.S. companies. The results are real. Eighty-five percent of Year Up alums are employed or in school within four months of graduating. Support opportunity for all young adults. Visit yearup.org. Follow The Business of Giving on Twitter at bizofgive and at facebook.com slash giving. And now, back to The Business of Giving with your host, Denver Frederick, on AM 970, The Answer.
0: It is quite an achievement for any organization, profit or non-profit, to make it to its 100th birthday. But that is what Junior Achievement has done as 2019 marks its centennial anniversary. And here to discuss with us its past achievements, as well as its future vision and plans, is the president and CEO of Junior Achievement USA, Jack Kozakowski. Good evening, Jack, and welcome to the Business of Giving.
2: Good evening. Thank you, Jennifer, for for having me on.
0: Well, congratulations on your centennial. Tell us a little bit about the founding of the organization way back in 1919 and a few Mm -hmm. of the milestones along the way.
2: Sure. The organization uh, was really founded as the Industrial Revolution was taking place. I mean, you know, we had lived in an agrarian society up until then, and the the businesses were finding that the young people really weren't prepared with the kind of skills that they needed to be successful uh, in this industrial economy. And so... Uh, we had a founder, Senator Murray Crane, uh, Horace Moses of the Strathmore Paper Company, mm-hmm. uh, and at that time the uh, head of at and were all three founders of the organization. And the idea back then was really very simple, to take young men and young women uh, and have them operate a mini company where they would do a production line. They would go out and sell stock, do everything that, you know, a business would do so that these young people would get that level of experience. And it became a very popular thing to do. It started here on the East Coast, uh, Springfield, Mass., Mm -hmm. uh, and really stayed uh, as a regional organization uh, through World War II. In fact, you know, sometimes timing is everything. There was a huge announcement by a big business group, uh, I believe, on December 1st. 1941, about expanding JA nationwide, Mm. and of course, the war got in the way. (laughs) Yeah,
0: (laughs) six days later. (laughs) Yeah, six days later.
2: So uh, after that, after World War II, uh, we started to do a nationwide expansion and uh, it took off very quickly. It was a very popular program. Of course, in those days, uh, it was an after-school program, involved high school students only, mm-hmm. um, and, and continued to grow. And really, that original company program that many listeners probably were a part of was the only program that Junior Achievement operated uh, up until about the mid-1970s. Uh, and at that point, a couple things uh, started to happen. Uh, we started to see that, you know, number one, uh, the skills that employers were looking for in young people uh, started to change. We were kind of merging into a service economy. Uh, the the other piece uh, is, even though we had been around since 1919, up until 1974, probably the maximum number of kids we were reaching nationwide was under 300,000. Mm-hmm. So to really make a movement, you needed more than that. We didn't know how many more. uh, And we need to reach them in different ways because another key was we started to see that the attitudes uh, that our supporters were looking to change in young people were being formed way before they got into high school. And so our first foray into an in-school program, uh, school environment, uh, was a program we called Project Business. Uh, which really took all of the elements of learn by doing from the J.A. Company program, but took it into the school. So we had a business volunteer that would go in and work in collaboration with the classroom educator. Uh, This at the time was an eighth grade program, uh, and teaching kids very basic fundamental economic concepts. And it proved so popular that teachers at the younger grades uh, were asking for more, and teachers at the higher grade. So uh, around the 19, uh, beginning of the 1980s, we became a full K-12 curriculum. And over the years, what started to happen is that after-school program dwindled a little bit. A couple of reasons. One is it's, it's more costly than the in-school approach because yep. you ha- had to maintain facilities – uh, but the the other piece of it is the demand from the schools was so high for what we were doing uh, that we were able to get those business people into the classroom. And what we found was uh, multiple benefits from that. You know, you were able to provide a sequential learning approach uh, to the students, kindergarten through twelfth grade. Uh, the partnership of the business executive and the teacher proved to be more valuable than we could have ever imagined. That, you know, a lot of our educators are asked to do so much in the classroom, and, you know, that continues today. But unfortunately, they just didn't have that business expertise that they could share. So a lot of the professional educators would tell us that you know they learned as much in the program uh, (laughs) uh, as the kids did. And so, you know, through the 80s and 90s, uh, those programs continued. Uh, And then uh, we started to get exposed to go back to more of a site-based experiential uh, program. And probably in 30 of our markets right now, we uh, have facilities called Capstone Facilities where we operate either our JA Finance Park program or a J BizTown program. And in these programs, for example, in JA Finance Park, the students take a financial literacy course uh, in school, But then they come to this J facility, which is very Disney-esque. I mean, it has uh, brands that they see on the street, different banks, different uh, home goods stores and things. So the students go into this facility with a life situation card. And it may say that you're 25 years old, an unmarried mother of two, uh, and you need to go through this little mall-like experience and do your budget for a year and uh, so they know how much money they're making so they have to you know limited choices uh, basic economics yeah real world uh, it's real world stuff mm-hmm. and because you're using real brands real experiences it that experiential learning takes place this becomes an emotional experience i've seen young people that have gone through this program and at the end they may be sitting there with tears yeah, yeah. and naturally i, I yeah. get a little concerned but mm-hmm. then i find out they realize what their parents had to go through to raise that
0: you know as part of all this growth you became an international organization as well how many countries are you in and how many young people are you serving currently
2: uh currently uh, globally we're approaching 11 million young people uh, about 4.8 million of those are in the united states mm-hmm. uh, we're in six regions around the world and i had the good fortune of serving for about four years as chief operating officer for a global entity. So, uh, you know, I did a lot of work in China, a lot of work in the former Soviet Union, in the Middle East, and the thing that struck me uh, as I had those experiences was how much more value the education system puts on what Junior Achievement does outside of the United States than they do In the United States Mm. Uh, you know for example Queen Rania of Jordan was our ambassador and she could get me into nearly any Ministry of Education and what you saw through these educators is that they knew they're graduating all these kids and if they didn't have jobs you know entrepreneurship when they graduated they're gonna spend their time doing something else and so it was a very real need for them
0: Who have been uh, some of the notable alums who have been part of Junior Achievement at one time or their or another? Probably uh,
2: that's a great question. One of the most notable is Mark Cuban, uh, who is, you know, a household name now. Yes, but, he is. Uh, Mark was uh, in the program Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and uh, he's made note through several blogs that he learned more about business and Junior Achievement than anything else he's done in his lifetime. Uh, Donna Shalala, former, what, Secretary of Health Education. And the president of the University of Miami Miami, as well. Mm Yeah, went through Junior Achievement uh, in Cleveland, Ohio. Mm -hmm. Uh, Listeners who are fans of the band KISS. Uh, Gene Simmons, I guess, yeah, is that that'd right? be it, right? Yeah, and very Gene, good. Gene is a New Yorker, <laughs> uh-huh. and uh, he credits all of his business acumen to Junior Achievement. In fact, he he wrote a book, uh, "Me Incorporated," and there's an entire chapter on Junior Achievement. <laughs> oh, that's great! So it goes the whole gamut. We have doctors, uh, we you know. Sometimes people think, okay, you're in the business of turning out little business people. That's not the case at all. We want to make sure that the young people that go through our programs have the experience and knowledge to choose the direction that they want to move in.
0: Yeah, I think uh, another example would be Dan Rather.
2: Dan Rather is another great example Mm -hmm, of mm -hmm. that.
0: So talk a little bit about those skills. What are some of them that somebody who goes through junior achievement will pick up, and how do they complement what they would ordinarily learn in school?
2: It's a good question. Now, clearly, we provide the business um, knowledge and acumen, so to speak, in terms of how to do it. But we're firm believers in the, you know, quote, unquote, soft skills. Now they're called 21st century skills of teamwork, collaboration, getting along with people. Uh, You know, our experience has been that uh, some of the most knowledgeable people are not successful because they just don't know how to get the job done and Mm -hmm. so in the junior achievement experience and you know it starts all the way down in kindergarten and goes all the way through high school uh, all these young people have to work with their peers and come up with solutions to complex problems so it's it's that information and some of it i think is just pure knowledge you know uh, young people grew up not knowing much about business in fact uh, it goes through cycles. I mean, I was in Jay in the early 70s, and business was a dirty word. It's <laughs> since, in the, you know, has gone up with people like Mark Cuban that, hey, business is a great thing, but now you're starting to see attack on business again. And mm-hmm. so what we're able to do is really provide the knowledge to the young people of what the capitalistic society that we have has been able to do for our country.
0: Are your programs predominantly or all in school, or do you still have some that are after school? What's the split of that? We
2: do have both in school and out of school, but I would say probably 95% of the programs are still in in school. Mm -hmm. Yes.
0: Well, you mentioned a moment ago about volunteers. And from what I've always understood, if there was really a backbone to the organization, it was your volunteer base. Tell us a little bit about who these people are, how you recruit them, and specifically what they do.
2: Okay. Uh, We have a quarter of a million uh, volunteers every year in the program. The vast majority of those are business people. We do have some PTAs and PTOs, but even then, they tend to be parents who are business people Mm -hmm. uh, that come into the classroom. We provide the curriculum in a very hands-on approach to teaching a topic. So the volunteers don't come in and lecture. They sort of work with the students on various projects. They get more complex as a student uh, goes through school. Um, I believe they are truly the secret sauce of what we do. I can believe it. Uh, In fact, I'll give you an interesting story, a personal story. I uh, first got involved in JA as a student, uh, as a sophomore in Toledo, Ohio, I uh, joined a company that was sponsored by the DeVilvis Company. I joined for all the wrong reasons. There was this cute blonde sitting in front of me, <laughs> and I thought this would be a great opportunity.
0: Sounds like uh, a good reason.
2: So I go to Jay the first session, and uh, there was a gentleman. He was uh, actually, I've just recently found out, an engineer for the DeVilvis Company who saw something in me that teachers hadn't seen, coaches hadn't seen. Uh, took a real interest and got me involved. And at that stage, I was the kind of kid who was an okay student, terrible athlete, terrible music. But Mr. Gimple saw something in me that other people didn't see. And, uh, you know, I never got the girl, but I certainly uh, threw that inspiration. And the funny thing is, I just finished 45 years professionally with the organization and my associates tracked down Mr. Gimple. Oh, that's great. Uh, and uh, he was amazed at the impact uh, that he had. So if any listeners think that one person can't change somebody's life, they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Mr. Gimple was that guy for me. You
0: know how important it is to, to measure the impact of uh, programs an organization has. And impact sometimes can be difficult to to, to weigh, but tell us a little bit about that and, and what kind of uh, successes have you had in terms of uh, the outcomes of the GEA programs?
2: Yeah. yeah, we've invested as an organization probably more than most youth organizations in terms of metrics of success mm-hmm. because the majority, vast majority of our money comes from the business sector and they demand to know what kind of results are we getting, right? And so uh, we do the standard pre and post tests, which you know we see there's tremendous uh, learning that takes place. Of course, the holy grail in any organization like ours is a longitudinal study, uh, which are very expensive, very difficult, and because we're in schools, it gets hard to get the kind of data. But we're starting to launch those. The, uh, we've done alumni retrospective studies uh, and it's sort of interesting, uh, 20% of the kids, so one in five J alumni end up in the same career as the volunteer they had in the J program. That is interesting. Yeah, so, so I mean I, that tells you volumes and you know when we talk to engineering groups and saying we need more female engineers, how do we do that? We've got to get those role models out in front of the kids because they're not exposed to that. They Mm -hmm. don't even realize that that's a a potential uh, career opportunity. We find out that J. alums are making 20 percent more uh, in their jobs. They've reported a higher level of happiness with their career than other folks. So uh, those are are sort of a retrospective, but we are getting more and more into – uh, the longitudinal and, and those direct studies. Mm-hmm.
0: In terms of studies, you do surveys on a periodic basis. One you have recently completed has been on disconnected youth, and those would be young people between 16 and 24 who are not working or enrolled in school. How big a group is that, and what trends are you seeing?
2: Yeah, uh, as part of our uh, centennial year, we uh, partnered with the Population Reference uh, Bureau Uh, And we pulled data from nearly uh, five decades uh, of census data. Mm -hmm. And so to give you a a sense of it, in 1970, 23% of females were disconnected. And that is not involved in work, not involved in school, kind Mm -hmm. of just not doing anything. By 2017, the most recent year that we had data for, only 11% were disconnected. That's impressive. So clearly there has been an impact not just by junior achievement, but everyone else. Society. The society that mm-hmm. is, is working uh, on those students. Now, on the males, uh, probably not so good. In uh, 1979, 9% of the males were considered disconnected. Uh, by 2017, it actually rose slightly to about 12%. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of reasons uh, for that. You know, you can go back to the Vietnam War. Uh, now, people were people my age were going to school just so they didn't go into the military. I do recall yeah and uh, then beyond that I, I think the good news is for uh, the disconnection rate for blacks and Hispanic youth uh, have fallen considerably mm-hmm. over that period of time from 23 to 18 percent for black youth and 23 to 13 percent. Uh, for Hispanics. So, I think the work of organizations like Junior Achievement is definitely having an impact. Uh, and and part of the reason we do these studies is really to be a knowledge base for folks that, you know, are interested in this space.
0: Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, that's really in your sweet spot here. You're dealing with these, these young people, and uh, it's good to know that you can put it on a macro level and really have some kind of a mm-hmm perspective of all the work that is going on. You know, you mentioned female engineers a moment ago, but a recent survey by JA indicated that teen girls' interest in STEM careers has declined slightly, and that's quite a surprise with so much emphasis being placed on that topic. What were some of the reasons for that decline?
2: Well, of course, you never really know. But uh, we, uh, when you look at the data and you look at the young people involved, most of what's being done in STEM education is uh, got a builder's uh, sort of philosophy around it, uh, talking about you know the the robotics, building robots, uh, writing code for uh, computer programs and things like that. And so in the survey, what we did see is that the young women are more interested in science from a standpoint of how can they help people. Yeah, purpose-driven. Purpose-driven, exactly. And so while we don't often think of nursing and medical as a STEM career, it clearly is built around science. And the g- young women's interest in those programs has increased substantially.
0: Yeah, I think even running a tractor these days is a STEM career oh, pretty much. You know, yes, <laughs> everything yes, it is. you do. Yeah. Um, Jack, I saw an article you recently wrote, and you suggested that organizations in the sector not refer themselves uh, as nonprofits, that we're doing ourselves a disservice. Why do you say that, and what do you suggest instead?
2: it's a great question a revelation and of course i've been in this career a long time mm-hmm. and we were working with some consultants on fundraising and you know they started to point out to us uh that we are the only sector of the economy that refers to themselves by what they're not as opposed to what they are yeah and uh, you know let's face it nonprofit is only a tax status mm-hmm. if uh we don't make a difference if we don't make an impact We're not going to exist. And so we really refer to ourselves now as a for-impact organization. The entire reason we exist is to prepare young people to succeed in a global economy. We do that through financial literacy, workforce readiness, and entrepreneurship education. So our entire focus now is uh, on impact. When we talk to donors, it's about impact. We talk to volunteers. It's about impact because that is why we exist. Yeah.
0: Well, whether you refer to yourself as a nonprofit or for impact, what you need is money <laughs> yes. to finance the organization and pay the bills. Tell mm-hmm. us about your business model and who some of your key supporters are.
2: Sure, uh, we raise in the United States about a hundred and collectively about one hundred eighty-five million dollars a year. Mm-hmm. The vast majority of that is corporate dollars, and so we are kind of the antithesis of the typical uh, nonprofit or social service agency that's getting uh, money from individuals. Uh, and so a lot of the companies – and it goes back to our, our beginning. Yeah, The whole reason we were started is to help prepare kids for the world of work. Mm-hmm. And so it, it only goes to serve that companies like City that are interested in – youth being financially literate and successful, uh, huge supporters. Go, so Financial services sector in general, uh, big supporters of Junior Achievement. Uh, the manufacturing sector is huge. We're, we're struggling a little bit in what I would call new economy businesses, uh, you know, out on the, the West Coast. And, and part of it is, I think, people still view Junior Achievement as an old economy organization, yet we are having tremendous success in a blended learning approach where we now have a learning management system so when our volunteers are going in to work with our teachers they're they're not opening a piece of paper they they have an ebook or you know are working off of their phone Uh, so there's technology there but um, yeah those are our primary sources of income now we are starting to look more and more at high net worth individuals uh, what we find out is that in the business sector uh, we're kind of a b2b mm-hmm. very our recognition level is very high uh, amongst uh, some in the in the high net worth individual not so much and so we're going to be putting more and more of an emphasis in that area
0: yeah and it's interesting what you say about Silicon Valley sometimes I Think that legacy organizations, there's a preconception about them, and they don't really take that careful look, and they're looking for younger startup tech centric nonprofits than they are for organizations that have been around for 100 years. Tell yeah. us a little bit about your workplace culture and maybe two or three things about it that you really think help make it exceptional.
2: Our workplace culture is cool. I mean, Uh, what (laughs) I want to tell you is, you know, I've been doing this 45 years. I feel like I've never worked a day in my life because we're helping people. Mm -hmm. And uh, what we're finding now, especially with millennials coming out of school, is they're looking to change the world. They're looking to make a difference. And there's very few careers where you are actually able to see day in and day out how you're changing people's lives and so uh, our culture is very much uh, decentralized. Uh, I know when I hire folks that uh, report directly to me, I say, hey, uh, I'm hiring your brains, not your time. Mm -hmm. And uh, so there's a bit of latitude that folks have in terms of being creative, in terms of how we accomplish our goals. Uh, The young people that uh, we're recruiting both at the national level and at our area level have an opportunity for remote uh, working, which, as you know, is becoming more and more popular, especially in markets like here in New York City. And so uh, I think it's a very collaborative culture. We use a corny term. Uh, People think it's corny, but we don't. Uh, We really see it as a J family, Mm -hmm. that uh, despite the fact we have these 107 markets across the country that kind of compete with each other to be the best of the best, the level of sharing that takes place in the organization is amazing. Mm -hmm. So if something is invented here in New York, uh, they're more than happy to share it with their peers around the country.
0: Yeah, I've I've done a lot of work on uh, nonprofit cultures and family is the word uh, that comes up in all the very best of them. We mentioned earlier, it is your centennial. Uh, Does the campaign have a theme and are there any activities uh, around it?
2: Well, Denver, it's interesting. When we started preparing for our centennial about three years in, and when we talked to other organizations that had gone through this, both for-profit and not-for-profit, uh, what we found is uh, a unanimous, number one, don't try to do too much, mm-hmm. and number two, nobody cares that it's your birthday. <laughs> and so uh, what we decided to do with some really good uh, marketing help is to, f- to reference the past. You know, the fact that we've been around 100 years is pretty impressive, uh, but we feel that that 100 years has really set us up to be more successful in the future. So the theme we've used is 100 years, 100% ready. I, mean, I think, And uh, mm-hmm. we've, we've been promoting that theme throughout.
0: Let me close with this, Jack, and has to do with career advice. Um, in a world where the jobs of today may not even exist 10 years from now, and conversely, there may be a whole new slew of jobs that we haven't even imagined yet, what advice would you give to a teen today About thinking about their future
2: career? It's a great question. And I would say that I've had a huge paradigm shift over the years uh, seeing young people uh, come up and, you know, faced with that question. Uh, When I was graduating from college, everybody's looking at where can I make the most money? Mm -hmm. Where am I going to get the most perks? And I was fortunate that I had found an organization I love. And so, I said well I like doing this and so my advice to young people that are graduating from college is number one yet you, you got to get the education mm-hmm. uh, you got to get that uh, but I would chase it sounds silly chase your dreams what do you like to do because I sincerely believe if you find what you like to do and it could be counting numbers it could be engineering whatever it is go after it. Mm -hmm. Get experience in it. Make sure it's really what you like to do. But if you find something you like to do, the money becomes secondary. (laughs) Uh, The fact that you're going to work is it's kind of what you enjoy. It becomes who you are. So I would really encourage young people not to chase the dollar, uh, but really to chase what they're good at and what they enjoy doing.
0: Yeah, which also sounds like they need to experiment a little bit. To really find out because sometimes we don't know until we actually start doing it.
2: You're absolutely correct. I mean, I remember when I was in high school, I loved, I had a bookkeeping class. I love bookkeeping. I look back on it now and it's like, thank goodness (laughs) that I I didn't go, what was I thinking? (laughs) Exactly.
0: Well, Jack Kozakowski, the president and CEO of Junior Achievement USA, I want to thank you so much for being here this evening. Tell us about your website and what visitors will find on it.
2: Okay. Our website is real easy to find. It's Mm -hmm. ja.org. And on our website, you'll be able to learn all about our programs um, and what we do. But I think more importantly for parents and for teens, uh, they will – well, students in general – will find activities. I, I think parents in general uh, struggle with having money talks mm-hmm. with their, their young people. And so uh, on our website, they'll be able to find a whole bunch of information at different age levels of what is appropriate to start doing. And, you know, we're firm believers you start as young as kindergarten, maybe even pre-kindergarten, uh, in terms of real simple stuff that you can do that you don't, Maybe realize the difference it's going to make in a kid's life. I mean, I I I talk to business people and educators. They always say, "Oh, you know, economics is so complicated. Financial literacy? No, it's not. You can't spend more money than you make. Number one." Number two, you got to save a little bit of everything that you make, and number three, you got to put something in insurance or whatnot for catastrophes. It really boils down to that. And you get as complicated as you want with mm-hmm. stocks and bonds and where you're going to do it. But if people in this country and really around the world could learn that the number one key to success is you can't spend more than you make, we'd be a lot better off than we are today
0: for sure and uh, but if you do have a little extra to spend I bet you have a donate button there too right
2: we absolutely <laughs> do if you'd like to invest in junior achievement uh, there is that opportunity
0: well thanks Jack it was a real pleasure to have you on the show
2: thank you very much
3: Denver. It's time for Take Five, a recurring feature of the business of giving with five or so quick questions posed to the leaders of the world of philanthropy, business, and social enterprise.
0: We're going to play Take Five with Simon Woods, the CEO of the Los Angeles Philharmonic. Are you ready, Simon? I'm ready. Hit me. What is one of your favorite documentaries or movies?
4: My favorite movie is a sort of a documentary, actually, which is a movie I've seen maybe 20 times, which is All the President's Men. What is today's most underreported story? It's not underreported, but it's the most important story, which is about the health of our planet. What idea in philanthropy is ready for retirement? The unfortunate desire of foundations to support only incremental work. We need foundations to support small organizations with unrestricted money that enables them to exist.
0: What is the favorite part of your morning ritual? A flat white. What have you changed your mind about in the last 10 years and why?
4: I guess more than anything else, it's about the power of individual voices and how they contribute to the whole. Being the cook that you are, if you were a kitchen utensil, what would you be? I don't think I'd be a kitchen utensil. I think I'd be a roast chicken. <laughs> <laughs> if you were going to pick up a magazine to read, what would that be? I've been reading Monocle recently. I like the way that it um, that it covers world affairs and design in a very global perspective.
0: If you were to start your career all over again and do something completely different
4: and away from this field, what do you think that might be? I would be an airline pilot. I've always loved flying. I started to learn to fly. In my next career, I'm going to fly pains professionally. What's your superpower? I'm an enthusiast. What topic would you speak about if you were asked to give a
0: TED talk on something outside of your main area of expertise?
4: I talk about Brazilian popular music.
0: What's the name of your favorite restaurant?
4: Mother India in Glasgow. What is
0: the best constructive criticism that you have ever received? Be yourself. What's the last thing you taught yourself to do? Fly a plane. What advice would you give to your 20-year-old self? Have courage. And finally, do you have a quote you live your life by or think of often?
4: Yes, I do. If in doubt, tell the truth. Thank you very much, Simon. You were great. Thanks. Thanks.
0: And that is this week's show. Next Sunday, my guest will be Amit Pali, the CEO of The Trevor Project. They operate a national 24-hour confidential suicide hotline for LGBTQ youth. Thanks for listening. Have a great week. And I do hope you return next Sunday evening for The Business of Giving.
3: The preceding program is paid for by the friends and partners of The Business of Giving.